0: Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out that we might know them. And Lot went out of the door. He shut the door behind him. He said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters. They have not known a man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and you do to them what is good in your eyes. Only these men do nothing, for they have come under the shadow of my roof." And they said, Stand back. And they said, This guy came to sojourn. He's a visitor in our town, and now he wants to be the judge. Now we will deal worse with you, Lot, than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men, the angels, put forth their hand and they pulled Lot back into the house to them and they shut the door and they smote the men that were outside the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. So they're still trying to knock down the door. Verse 12, And the men said to Lot, Have you have anyone here besides you, like a son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whoever you have? Get them out of the city. Bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because of the cry of them is great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake to his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he seemed to them as one who was mocking or joking. And when the morning arose, the angels hastened Lot and said, Arise, take thy wife, thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, so Lot hesitates, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad, they said, hey, escape for your life. Don't look behind you. Neither stay thou in the plain. Go to the mountains, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said, not so, my Lord. And so he argues with him. But now your servant has found grace. That's true. You have magnified your mercy. That's true. You've saved my life, but I don't want to escape to the mountain. I cannot escape to the mountain unless some evil take me and I Die. Behold, now there's a city near to flee to. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Verse 21, and they said to him, See, I've accepted this concerning you also. I will not overthrow that city, that little city which, for, for which thou hast spoken. Haste there. Escape there. For I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen on the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord... Rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind her, from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt." And Abraham got up early that morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And behold, lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. Lot went up out of Zoar, dwelt in the mountain with his two daughters with him. For he feared to dwell in Zoar. And so he dwelt in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him. That we may preserve the seed of our father. And they made the father drink wine that night. The firstborn went in and lay with her father and he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay yesterday night with my father. Let us make him drink wine. This night also you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger arose and lay with him. And he perceived not when she lay down or when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son called the name Moab, he's the father of the Moabites, enemies of Israel to this day. Verse 38, the younger also bear a son called his name ben Ami, And the same is the father of the children of Ammon, another enemy of Israel to this day. Now with all that being read, turn to the book of Jude in the New Testament of the Bible. We're going line by line, verse by verse through the book of Genesis And part of the reason we do this is so that we have to hit all the topics and do all the teaching that the Bible gives us to do. The reason we do that is so that we don't just stick with the comfortable parts of the Bible, the parts we love to preach on, like encouragement, answers to prayer. I'd pretty much rather preach on anything than this text. This is not a text we naturally gravitate to. This is not the text I think of when I'm asked to speak at a youth retreat or a pastor's gathering or something like that. This is simply a tough story, but it is God's word for us today. As I read through the story several times this week, I tried to find a way to preach it all in one sermon, but the truth is there is just no way, unless you guys want to stay till midnight, which I'm sure you don't. There's just so much in this text. In fact, I tried to get it down to just the main points, but there are so many verses in this text that each make a main point. So I actually had to begin looking for the main points of the main points. And I found those in the New Testament of the Bible. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is referenced about nine times in the New Testament. A few of those times really help us see the main point the main point of the story. So you can thank the New Testament writers for this sermon outline or blame them depending on how this goes. We'll start with Jude. Jude is only one chapter, so look at verse 7. And Jude will tell us that this story, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, serves as a foreshadowing, an example of hell. Even Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So the Bible is clear. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Now, the scriptures invite us, implore us, beg us to go to the former rather than the latter. We are invited to heaven. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there's many rooms. One's got your name on it. Come dwell with me that where I am, you might be also. All who would repent and believe on Jesus will be ushered into the kingdom of Jesus for eternal life in heaven. However... Jesus said that if we do not repent, we do receive the latter. We do receive hell, the very thing Jesus died to save us from. Now, I tell you this soberly soberly. I know some of you grew up in denominations where you went to church camp and they talked about hell the same way we do haunted houses and they freaked you out and they got you down an aisle and it was emotional and it was scary and it was all these things. I understand you've heard about this topic in some insobriety in the past, but I am telling you soberly, about this, There is a huge part of me that does not even want to talk about this, but I follow Jesus, and Jesus talked about this. Jesus actually taught about hell twice as much as he did heaven. So if we follow Jesus, we believe in hell. If we follow Jesus, we warn others about hell as he did. If we follow Jesus, we try to save as many people from hell as we can, for that is what he spent his life, his death, his resurrection doing, But soberly before you, I say, this is a reality. Jesus himself said, if you do not repent, you will all likewise perish. Whoever believes will not perish. They will have everlasting life. However, if you will not believe, you are condemned already, for you have not believed in the only Son of God. And if you will not repent, Jesus said, you'll be cast into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what happens to the non-repentant. And Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture for us of unrepentance. Jude 1.7, it says that they gave themselves over, very key phrase, to fornication and to strange flesh, sexual sin. This is the language of unrepentance. So I want to be careful here. We all struggle with sexual sin. We all struggle with all kinds of sexual sin. If you're here and you are struggling with some of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, homosexuality, same-sex attraction, all that, you are welcome here to struggle with us. We will struggle with you till till, till, till we go to heaven. These are not strugglers. These are not seekers in Sodom and Gomorrah. These are not people hoping to repent and to change and to believe and to look for the one who can change the heart and make it new. These are people who have seen God for he rescued them from the enemy. In chapter 14, he sent Abraham on a miracle journey to beat four kings that had basically taken Sodom and Gomorrah captive. So they have seen the power of God. They emphatically have said, no, thank you, and have given themselves over to do whatever sin they want. That's who we're talking about this morning, the unrepentant. Jesus loves those who will seek. He said, seek you'll find, knock it'll be opened. The door is open for you. The Bible says we will seek him and find him when we search for him with all our heart. Jesus is open to the struggler. He cared for those who were in things like prostitution and the woman at the well with multiple divorces and all these problems and sins in this realm. He loves people who struggle. He loves people who fight their sin. He loves people who repent. He loves the unrepentant, but the unrepentant who say an emphatic no to God, this is what happens to them. There is judgment. They say no to him, and so eventually he will say no to them. They gave themselves over. They say no to the God revealed by nature. They look at all that exists, and they purport that there is no God. They say no to their conscience. They try to medicate it away as if it's some nuisance rather than a gift. They say no to the word of God itself. They say no to Jesus, all his teaching, his miracles, all the evidence we have for a resurrected Christ. They look at this and say no. Jesus said it would actually be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those on this side of history who can see the evidence for the son of God's coming, living, dying, and rising and reject him still. They say no. Now, there are times when God is in his mercy and in his glory, gracious to still work on such a heart and bring them to repentance. But the scriptures also tell us that there are times when they give themselves over, then God gives them over and hardens their heart. We see this in Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. We see this in Romans 1 with those in sexual sin like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. God gives them over due to their unrepentance. And what happens when God hardens a heart, two things. In this life, they have a spiritual judgment. Spiritual judgment given over. The idea is now nature and conscience and the word and Jesus' stories and miracles will no longer work on the heart. It will no longer point them in the right direction. They will be like the men of the days of Noah who are only able to do evil. They will corrupt themselves and everything they touch. They perhaps will become demonically possessed or oppressed in an extreme way to where they will just live a life only of sin. They will be given over. And their heart will be hardened in this life, and that will prepare them for a judgment to come in the next life, a physical judgment. And this is what Sodom and Gomorrah foreshadows, that they will be judged by God at a great white throne. And all they did, all their sin will be examined, and they will be judged according to their works. And it will be double-checked to see whether or not they believed and repented, their names will be checked for the, in the book of life. And if their name, if your name, if my name is not found written in the book of life, we will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What Jude is saying is at Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone came down from heaven as a picture of what we will go down into if we do not repent. So I beg you, repent and believe in Jesus. For there is a judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah is a reminder for all of history of this fact. I mean, it's one of the most referenced places in biblical history, and yet it has not been on any map since this day. Its absence from the map is forever to remind us of the absence of repentance and thus the absence of salvation for all who will not repent and receive grace. Josephus, a historian, writing around the same time that Jesus lived, he knew where the Sodom and Gomorrah ruins were. They were in eerie silence on the map. This day and age, it's a little harder to find the exact ruins, perhaps, of Sodom and Gomorrah since it's been another 2,000 years. But if you research it, you will find that to this very day, very day, 2021, south of the Dead Sea, on the terrain, there are balls of sulfur on the ground periodically also known as brimstone. And all the terrain has calcium sulfate dusted across it, which is what limestone turns into when it's caught on fire. That's the thing they would have used to build their houses and buildings. Why is it all calcium sulfate? There's no volcano around there at all. Perhaps it came down from heaven, a fire from on high rather than a fire from the ground. Due to this, archaeologists, as recently as 2020, on certain digs believe that they have found the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah again, clearly destroyed by catastrophic events. And if that's indeed what they found, here's the idea that Jude is telling us. That sulfur, that calcium sulfate, is dusted across that ground forever to remind us of the judgment to come for those who will not repent. That's very heavy. And all I can say is, correct. That's the point of the story. It's supposed to be heavy. Sin is heavy. Its consequences are heavy. That's the point. That's why Jesus died on a cross. Because he loves us. That's why he had to carry a heavy cross. That's why he rose again and ascended to be our king. This is why he came from heaven to earth. It was to deliver us from something this heavy. Jesus wants us to know the heaviness of this. He was the one who even said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off, for it's better to go into eternal life maimed than to be whole and cast into the fires of hell. This is Jesus who said that. So this text, Genesis 19, serves us in two ways. One, it helps us see how heavy our sin is. So we repent and turn to Jesus who took all the fire and brimstone for us on the cross. Whatever came down on Sodom and Gomorrah is almost nothing compared to the wrath that came down on Jesus. And the wrath that came down on Jesus while he hung on the cross was all for you. It helps us to turn. It helps us to repent. It teaches us the heaviness and the seriousness of our sin that we might find grace and be redeemed from all of it so that we don't have to worry and are free from fear of life after death. And it also assures us that in the end, there will be perfect justice. Turn to Luke 17. Luke 17. This story assures us of God's justice when we can't see it. Sometimes we're faced with some really hard questions. And one of those questions is, why does God allow evil? Or why doesn't he stop evil? God, where are you? Now, it's also a good question to ponder, why don't we stop evil? How do we stop evil? Through sharing our faith in the good news that changes hearts. Jesus' death, resurrection, Holy Spirit grace. We change, we can stop evil through our outreach. I mean, at times we act like hell's not even real. Though the church is supposed to be charging the gates of hell because the gates of hell cannot prevail. As heavy as they are, the cross we beat down those gates with is much heavier. It'll never prevail. I often wonder how different we would be if we could just see or hear hell for like one second. I mean, there's a story of a guy who did that, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man became like the best evangelist on the planet once he experienced hell. He said, send Lazarus back to my brothers. Tell them to repent. We should see to it that we're trying to stop evil through preaching the good news. Because if we preach the good news, some, many will repent and be saved. Because God is so good. Sodom and Gomorrah, these people, they abuse people. They'll abuse anyone who comes into town, even these two men, in the worst possible ways. And you're sitting there going, God, why don't you stop that? God, aren't you going to do anything about that? Right? We look at the world, war criminals, rapists, serial killers, terrorists out there. Not talking about wayward college kids who are tempted to go to a party and have a drink. I'm talking about there are people out there that bloodthirsty, unrepentant mass murderers laughing at the destruction they leave in their wake. And like, God, why don't you stop them? Perhaps you've been following the news on the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. You see people who would rather be on the outside of an airplane than with the Taliban because of their torture, their torment. That is sure to come. In my experience as well, a different topic is that there's been an increase in the awareness of the the world's sex trafficking problems in the last decade or more. I think more people are aware of the sex trafficking, the human trafficking that goes on than ever before. This was in part the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. This idea of rape that they were trying to do, to commit towards these angels. And we see all this and we're like, are they getting away with it? God, where are you? And again, they won't repent. A human trafficker, a sex trafficker who will repent, I do believe they need to be locked up. But in the next life, they will be unlocked because God's grace is just that amazing. He can save all who believe in any sin. But there are many, some, who do not repent. In fact, I recently read through this interview, this crazy story of the FBI, CIA, whoever, taking years to find this one human trafficking ring led by this one human trafficker, and they finally track him down. They arrest him, guilty as charged. He's going to spend, hopefully, the rest of his life in jail. And someone actually interviewed him, and they asked him, they said, are you sorry? And if we let you out today, would you do it again? And he, he said, I am not sorry. And if I was let out today, I would do it again. In his eyes, he did nothing wrong. And you was like, where are you, God? What does justice look like for a guy like this? So many children damaged by his hand, permanently damaged by him, outside of the grace and, and, and redemption of Christ and, the, and what eternity is able to do for them. And yet he's sitting in a cell, not even sorry about it, not... Not suffering, what we would say looks like he ought to suffer. Like, what is going on? Sodom and Gomorrah, they demand to sleep with angels. God blinds them, and they do not repent. They wear themselves out. They keep banging on the door after they've been blinded by a supernatural power. They do not repent. What is, where are you, God? And the story serves us because it helps us make no mistake God will one day settle all accounts of the unrepentant. God's wrath is greater than our wrath. His anger is purer than our anger. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, even though sometimes it looks like they're getting away with it. Look at Luke 17. Luke 17, starting in verse 26. These are the words of Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also it was in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom... It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Right? It's true that there are sex traffickers, war criminals, terrorists, unrepentant abusers of mankind that right now are eating and drinking and buying and selling and even perhaps uh, ruling and reigning. And it seems like they are driving around scot-free and God says that might be the case to your eyes. But in a moment, in one moment, at the right moment, the unrepentant will be judged. He will settle the account. This This could happen at their death, and they will die and stand before God. Or this, what Jesus is talking about here, could happen at the second coming of Christ. But do not envy them. Do not wonder about them. Do not wish that you had more of the things they have and more of the power they have. The Bible says that it is a blink, it is a vapor, and those who will have everything might have nothing. Jesus said the last will be first, but the first will be last. There are some who have risen to power, perhaps, some who are celebrities, perhaps, some who are influential in the culture, perhaps, who have done that through unrepentance. And we look at them and we like them and we're like, it's glamorous and it's desirable. And Jesus here is saying, no, 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 don't look back on the world. Look forward to the second coming. At the second coming, a lot of things are going to be flipped in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. There will be people right now in robes that will be in rags, and there will be a few homeless people I know at the gas station on the edge of Poe Mill who have no home, who will have a mansion forever. It will be flipped, and the accounts will be settled. Verse 31, it says, In that day he which shall be upon the housetop, and his stuff in the house, don't go down and take it. Don't look back at this world. He that is in the field, let him likewise not turn back. Don't worry about your profits so much. This world is fading away. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. This is for your good. This is an example for you. This story was recorded for you to remember that whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. So many people trying to save their life through unrepentance. If they repent, they have to give up all their sin. So they don't repent to keep their sin, their status, the culture going, their life, their 70, 80 years of self-indulgence. And yet, in the end, they lose it all. And there are some of you here who you fight sin tooth and nail day in, day out. It is your constant bother. It is your constant burden. It is your constant temptation. You fall over and over again and you hate it, hate it, hate it. And yet one day that will be the proof of your great release from all Tyranny and from all sin and from Satan's attacks, and it will all be over like a bad dream. You struggle to remember, and you will live outside of the flesh forever in a glorified body that cannot be tempted, for nothing that defiles will enter therein. It'll all be flipped at the second coming. Lot's wife loved Sodom and she looked for Sodom and she didn't repent. Ten minutes. After leaving the city, she's missing it, wanting this world, wanting this culture, wanting to save her life, and then she loses it. As we approach the second coming of Jesus, many will deny the second coming of Christ. They won't want his second coming, they want their life, their status, their sin. They longingly look to this world what will happen to them as they look at this world, rather than looking forward to a world to come, is they will find that this world is going to be burned up in a moment, in an instant. Peter said the elements will melt with a fervent heat and those who do not repent, their account will be settled as they are excluded from a new heaven and a new earth where those who repented will be ushered in. Here's the idea. Know with certainty, no matter what your eyes tell you, that God will settle the accounts of all the unrepentant and justice will be served. Sodom and Gomorrah teaches us this. But just as sure as there is justice, there is the good news of justification. That you can receive justice or justification. Justification means to be declared not guilty, though you are guilty. You could be declared not guilty. That's why it's called grace. It's like, I'm not, I am guilty. I hear you, same. But I'm declared not guilty, partly because of what's taught in Sodom and Gomorrah's story. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. This story confirms grace and faith based righteousness. Did you notice in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah how there is no human hero? Isn't that a trip? Like, at first, it kind of seems like Lot's going to be the hero, right? Like, he, he's going to save these angels from staying in the street all night. Then he, he says, hey, don't do so wickedly against my guests. And you're almost sort of set up at first. It looks like you're going to see Lot as the good guy and the city of Sodom as the bad guy. And that's why Lot is spared. But actually, the city of Sodom, they're bad guys. And Lot's a bad guy. And Lot is spared, Right? I mean, that's such an interesting story. There's no human hero. I mean, you quickly find out Lot is the leader of Sodom. That's why he's the one sitting in the gate. He's not a volunteer. He's like the mayor. That's why he sees the angels first. Then you see that whatever they're wanting to do with the angels is wicked. Lot calls it wicked, but then he offers up his daughters in their place, which is just as wicked. And when it's time to go, he hesitates. He lingers to the point where the angels literally have to grab his hand and rescue him, drag him and his family out of the city. When he does get out of the city, drunkenness and incest are part of his life. So why on earth is this dude spared and the rest destroyed? Like, what is the difference? And the difference comes down to grace, grace. Grace. Simply put, Lot is receiving grace. Grace is unmerited favor. And it is due to his connection to God's covenant with Abraham, which was the ruling authority on earth at the time. There was nothing about Lot that spared him. There was nothing about his works that spared him. The Bible is very plainly telling us in Genesis 19 that Lot is not saved because he's better than the rest of the Sodomites. He's saved by grace. Genesis 19, 16. And while Lot lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand. And the Lord, being merciful to him, brought him forth out of the city. Genesis 19, 29. It came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Right? So Lot is rescued not by his works, but by Grace. The hero of the story is not Lot. It is the Lord. And the hero of your story is not you. It is Jesus Christ and his grace. The myth is that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Not true. Bad people go to hell. Bad people go to heaven. The difference between them is those who would receive grace We are going to heaven. I'm going to heaven, but it is not because I am better than you. I might be worse than you, but Jesus died for my sin and I am freed from it and all its destruction. You say, are Christians better than everybody else? No, but we are better off. Are Christians better than everybody else? No, but we have some better news that you can receive grace. The point of Sodom and Gomorrah is not to go out necessarily and be a great person who God likes. You're not a great person. God likes you anyway. It's called grace. He's being saved by grace. The Lord is the hero of the story. He is helping. He is concerned. He is merciful to Lot just because of the grace that is given to Lot, being connected to Abraham's covenant. As you escape judgment, it will not be because you deserve less judgment. It'll be because God remembers Jesus instead of Abraham at this point in history He remembers the nails in his hands. He remembers the spear in his side, the crown of thorns on his skull, the three days he spent in the tomb. He remembers his resurrection and that you repented and came under that covenant. This is called the new covenant and man is it good news. And under that covenant, you are spared because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did or what you do. Lot is this perfect picture of being saved by Grace. Lot is rescued, not by his works, but by grace. Lot is not rescued by his works, but by faith. Now, here's something you may want to be sitting down for. But it turns out, this whole time, that Lot is a believer. I know. If I didn't have a chapter and verse, I would have laughed at this, too. Like, what? That's not a believer, right? We, I'll tell you this. Our church is a pretty chill church overall. It may not seem like it today, but we're in Genesis 19. So, But our church is a pretty chill church, right? We would, we would church discipline a lot. Like, he couldn't even have a donut, okay? <laughs> like, a lot. We love you. We'll counsel you. We'll pray for you. But it's probably better if you leave, <laughs> I'm just kidding. In all seriousness, we love everyone, no matter what their sin is. I'm just kidding. But Lot, obviously, in the story, it's kind of messed up. But believe it or not, this messed up dude believes something, and it counts to him as righteousness. Could any human make this up? This is all from God. It's inspired by God. I mean, he's a backslidden believer. He's a believer that has very little to show for his belief. He, he's a believer who is a perpetual prodigal, Yet, he's indeed a believer. I don't know if he got saved in chapter 12 when he saw the plagues come down on Pharaoh on Abraham's behalf. Chapter 14, when Abraham did that rescue thing and rescued the people of Sodom and Gomorrah from the four kings from the east. At some point, it appears Lot actually believed in the God of Abraham and in the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Now, you might be wondering, well, where's this fruit? Jesus said, believers will have fruit. You might be wondering, where are his works? Jesus said, James said, rather, that faith without works is dead. Here's where they are. This is all he had. This is all he had. But here's his fruit. 2 Peter 2, 6 through 8. 2 Peter 2, 6 through 8. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example to those who after should live ungodly. We covered that. Now look at this. He delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation or lifestyle of the wicked. For that righteous man, Lot, dwelling among them and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So here's the crazy thing. The only real difference between the men of Sodom and Lot was their heart. That's it. The men of Sodom felt no regret, no remorse, no repentance in their hearts over their lifestyle. None. Lot lived almost the exact same lifestyle. But according to the scriptures here, he was vexed. He knew it was wrong. Somewhere deep down, he regretted his lifestyle. He, though he, he, he continued in it, it really seems that at some point he was sorry. Sorry. Now, like we said, the point of the story is not to be like Lot. The scriptures are filled with calls to have a greater faith than Lot's faith. The point of the story is not to be like Lot, but the point of the story is this, that those who are spared from judgment and hell are not spared because of themselves, their works, even the works their faith leads them to, or because they're better than anybody else. They are spared by grace and faith, even if sometimes the only evidence of that faith is being able to acknowledge their sinfulness and feel vexed over it. Even if the only fruit you have of your faith is regretting sin and calling it sin. Even if sometimes the only work you have to point to is your own remorse, over your sin. Even if the only good work you do is feeling sorry for your bad works, if it's a faith in Jesus, it will justify us and it will be counted to us as righteousness. Meaning it'll be counted as if we never did the sins we remorse for. It'll be counted as if we only did what was good. And if we only fed the poor and as if we only healed the blind and if we only fed the 5,000, if we only hung out with the widows and the orphans, it'll be counted to us as if we did all the things Jesus did. You're like, I didn't do half of those things. It's called grace and it is counted to you as righteousness if you will only believe. Here's part of the point of Lot's rescue. Salvation really isn't about your goodness. It is about God's goodness. It really isn't about your work. It is about Jesus' work on the cross. Ephesians 2:8 8, and 9. For by grace... You are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen. Amen. It is salvation so free and so generous and so effective and so accessible. Even a guy like Lot could experience it. You can experience it. Hear me well. I do not want you to go to hell. And much more, Jesus of Nazareth doesn't want you to go to hell. That is why Jesus paid it all. It is finished. And all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's some good news And in part, that's the story of Lot being rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah. So here's what we're going to do. As this is a real heavy sermon, we're going to just take some time to pray. Just silently in your seat. No one has to do this out loud. No one has to move. You don't have to stand up. You don't just in your seat. Our brother David is going to come up and play for two to three minutes on the piano. And as he prays, I want you to just sit and pray, or as he plays, I want you to sit and to pray before we continue worshiping. Do you know anyone heading for God's justice? Pray that they'd receive mercy. Pray that God would give you the strength and the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Pray that they'd respond. Pray that they'd repent and come to Jesus. Because whoever comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. Pray about this. Are you repentant? What do you need to repent of? What can you repent of right now? In what ways are you like Lot? In what ways are you vexed over your sin, but then you do almost absolutely nothing to get rid of your sin? You are sorry, but you are not changing. Now, praise God that you're saved by grace and faith and not your works, but pray that you might learn from Lot And leave Sodom willingly today rather than having to be yanked by the arm because you're so stubborn. Thank God as we pray. Thank God for His justice that we can't and don't have to make the whole world right this instant. He will do that. Thank God, though, that He will give grace to those who call on his name and save people by Jesus' work instead of their own so that instead of justice, we could be justified. We're going to take two to three minutes and I just want you to pray before the musicians lead us in some more songs.